Hello, and welcome to the best of the FT podcast. It's a corporate misbehaviour special this week. Volkswagen, 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 and a little bit of Turing Pharmaceuticals. We'll explain who they are later. We'll also be hearing about whether Britain will vote to leave the EU. I'm Henry Mance, the Financial Times media correspondent. Thanks for listening. First, we all make mistakes, but investing in a Volkswagen will never be one of them. That's what an advert for the car maker said last year. And it's probably one of many things that the company's executives are now regretting. Volkswagen was caught rigging emissions tests in the US. Its shares have since fallen by one third. The company has set aside 6.5 billion euros to cover the cost of the fallout and its chief executive has resigned. Some people have wondered how you actually rig an emissions test. Well, here's Andy Sharman, our motor industry correspondent, with the answer. These laboratory tests follow a certain cycle whereby the car accelerates to a certain level, then decelerates, then accelerates again. And the suspicion is that it's possible for software to detect those cycles and basically come to the conclusion that, right, I'm being tested, turn on the emissions controls. But surely Volkswagen would have foreseen the risks of all this. Why, oh, why would it do it? The point is that the big gap between laboratory test results for fuel economy and emissions of nitrogen oxides, and then how these cars perform out on the road. The big gap has been well documented by campaign groups for some time, and it's always been blamed on sort of hopelessly outdated testing regimes, at least in Europe, that allows car makers to get away with certain tricks. One big question is whether other car makers might have behaved similarly. Here's Andy Sharman again. The companies have been fairly quick to come out and say they don't have any similar software devices on their vehicles. But climate campaigners, again, are saying, look, we've been getting these results across the board. It's not just VW cars that have been performing much worse out in the real world. So perhaps you ought to look at this. And I think some regulators and policymakers are listening, ordering or at least calling for industry-wide investigations. John Gapper, our chief business commentator, joins me to discuss events at Volkswagen. John, this isn't just about a particular car maker. This is about a whole technology around diesel. That's right. Volkswagen was the largest seller of diesel cars in the US. And Europe as a whole has made an enormous bet on diesel technology that it's a fuel-saving technology, so it would reduce CO2 emissions. And there was the hope that you could filter out enough of these NOx particles so it wouldn't create smog as well. But this scandal not only throws the future of Volkswagen into doubt, it also throws the future of diesel technology itself into doubt. And some people are comparing this to the LIBOR scandals that hit the banking industry. Is there a sense in which the car industry had it coming as the financial sector did before, say, 2008? Well, I don't think people inherently hate car engineers and auto executives as much as they dislike bankers. The former aren't seen as overpaid. They aren't overpaid in in the same way. However, vehicles kill people. It's something everybody can understand. There are enormous risks, and these safety tests are a matter of life and death, literally. So although we may or may not uh, put car executives in the same category as bankers, there are real issues that affect everybody here. And a lot of people are going to be sort of saying, well, I was sold my car, it's a diesel car, and I was conned. And this comes at a time when the car industry is on the brink of a shake-up, perhaps, from big technology companies looking to come in. So you mentioned diesel under, under threat. In fact, the whole sort of car maker model or dominance may well be coming under scrutiny from investors. Yes, absolutely. There's the whole question of uh, new firms such as Tesla, 
building electric cars. There's also Google and Apple, which are talking about building their own possibly self-driving cars. So the car industry, the model of the auto assemblers dominating the industry, is certainly in question, if not under threat. So there's a whole set of technological challenges facing them. And this, you've got to remember, is an industry which is not highly profitable. It operates on pretty slim operating margins. Car makers often get into financial trouble. So it's not exactly rich, fat and happy to start off with. And so that's the long-term challenge. The short-term challenge for Volkswagen, how are they dealing with the fallout from these emissions test revelations? Well, they're clearly coming under a huge amount of criticism, a lot of it justified. And some people are questioning whether or not they've acted fast enough, whether or not they're uh, too large a company, too complacent. Personally, I think that they've actually been acting pretty fast. I mean, I haven't seen a bank that got rid of its chief executive within three days of the scandal erupting. And Volkswagen is talking about more firings, pretty openly talking about firing more executives, possibly this week. So they may have started off slowly, but they're accelerating pretty fast. Great. John, thanks very much for joining me. Volkswagen wasn't the only company in the line of fire this week. Turing Pharmaceuticals, a drug company that most people have never heard of, caused fury when it bought the rights to an AIDS drug, Daraprim, and then raised the price immediately from $13.50 a pill to $750 a pill. Hillary Clinton promised to end such pharmaceutical price gouging if she became president, and that wiped billions off the share prices of drug companies. Here's David Crow, our senior US business correspondent, explaining why all this matters. What it has done is it has brought to the fore the fact that there is already tension in the system, that those who pay for drugs, that's the employers and the health insurers, are already saying this is getting out of hand, we can't afford it, and we have to find ways of driving down the cost. And that, regardless of who ends up in the White House, is a dynamic that is not going to go away anytime soon. Now, the chief executive of Turing Pharmaceuticals, Martin Shkreli, was initially unrepentant, but he did later say that he would lower the price but he didn't specify by how much. Other drug companies still have some thinking to do. Well, the pharmaceutical companies are are sort of quite angry at at Martin uh, Shkreli, but they argue that there still needs to be high pricing for innovative drugs. You know, there still needs to be a reward for drugs that turn cancer from a life-threatening illness to a chronic illness. And if someone comes along with that drug, they should be rewarded. And so they're sort of, I think that they're edging towards what's going to have to be a grand bargain, where this sort of price gouging, where you take a drug that's relatively cheap, that, that's old, that's off patent, and, you, and you, you jack up the price overnight, they'll need to find a way of stopping that if they're going to create the headroom in the system to really reward the, the science and the innovation that unearths those drugs that will save and alter lives. The pharma industry, by the way, has been in vogue amongst investors, with share prices soaring. Veteran British investor Terry Smith, however, isn't so impressed. He spoke to Claire Barrett, editor of FT Money. I realise that it has been particularly popular with certain investors. I mean, mind you, um, you know, dot-com stocks were very popular with investors in 1999, and mining stocks were quite popular with investors until recently yes, as well. Yes, we all know what uh, happened uh, there. Well, exactly. I mean, you'd almost take popularity with investors not as a positive in this regard, uh, is my first point. Um, secondly, is it overvalued? Yes, I think it is. I mean, something like AstraZeneca, which appears to be on a P of 15 on these underlying earnings mm. that they've conjured up, uh, is actually on closer to 70 times earnings in reality. If that's not overvalued, I'd be somewhere between shocked and flabbergasted, frankly. Underlying earnings mean that the company hasn't included some costs when calculating its profits. And PE is the ratio between the share price and the profits per share. So a low PE is cheaper and a high PE gets rather more expensive. 
the most important point is this. I think it's led to um, the making decisions which are a misallocation of capital. Um, they've been on this buying spree in, the, in buying up uh, biotechnology companies um, and they've paid premium for those biotechnology companies that they've bought, which are way beyond what people normally pay in takeovers. And I think they're able to do that because this accounting basically takes all of those costs out of their profit and loss accounts. Finally, something completely different. Will Britain stay in the European Union? Well, the Labour Party's commitment to the cause seems to be waning. Here's Janan Ganesh, our political commentator. You can see that there's actually been a progressive, slight decline in the level of European commitment in recent Labour leaders. So uh, Tony Blair, famously pro-European, wanted to get this country into the euro. Gordon Brown, a bit less pro-European than Tony Blair, uh, famously sceptical about the euro. Ed Miliband, again, quite critical of aspects of... Uh, the European Union, free movement seemed to trouble him, whether it had an impact on people at the low paid end of society. And now Jeremy Corbyn, who hasn't said he wants to leave and certainly won't commit the party to leave, but he himself has views which are quite hostile to European integration. He sees it as the left often have as a capitalist club. So Labour have gone some way away from where they were a decade ago, which was an unambiguously pro-European party. So will that tilt the balance in favour of Britain leaving the European Union? What matters is can the, the, the Leave campaign persuade people that if we leave, they will be materially better off. It's not enough to say we'll be no worse off, because otherwise why would you go through the upheaval? They have to clear a very high evidential burden uh, to show that we'd be better off if we left the European Union. And my political hunch is that you can almost never do that. And if you look at referendums in this country, whether it was the last EEC referendum in 75, which you alluded to, or the Scottish referendum last year, or the AV referendum in 2011. The alternative vote, changing the voting system. The voting system. The status quo always wins. Not because the status quo is necessarily right, but because the burden on the other side to prove that things would be better off is almost impossible to clear. We'll take that as a no then. We, however, are leaving. Our producers were Fiona Simon and Feline Reyes. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening, and please do visit ft.com for the full picture. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast... You might like to try our FT News podcasts, which focus on one of the main issues of the day and bring you the insights and expertise of our global network of journalists, as well as outside contributors. You can download these at ft.com slash podcasts most days of the week.